Artemis endeavors to get more women and girls in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. So welcome to the Artemis podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance. Our co-host today is Marsha Brownlee. Hi. How are you, Marsha? I'm good. I'm not in the hot seat today. How does it feel to not be in the hot seat? You know, I feel wildly unprepared. <laughs> I just showed up. That's the, adva- good. That's the advantage of being the co-host. I can speak from yeah. experience. Um, I'm just excited for a fun conversation. Yes, as am I. So our guest today is Morgan Harrell. Hi, Morgan. Hey, how are y'all? We're doing great. Can you tell us where where you're located? I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. Awesome. So we've got we have the southeast and we have Montana on today, but we're (laughs) we're repping the southeast right now. I'm happy for it. (laughs) So Morgan, what's it like down there? Sorry, I've I've I I, apparently I'm hung up on weather across the country because that's always one of my (laughs) questions. What's the weather like where you are? Oh my gosh, it is a balmy, probably like 82 out there right now. Sun shining, a mm-hmm. um, little overcast, which means, you know, a little bit of cumulus clouds out there, but it's gorgeous. It feels like spring and summer is not far. I think 90 next week. Oof. It's, yeah. In my book, summer's already started. I feel like once it hits 80, we're in summer, even though I know in the Southeast, that's not necessarily the cutoff. No. And Columbia is special. We're like kind of in a bowl here in the Sandhills. And the saying is the only thing between Columbia and hell is a screen door. <laughs> so it's it can be like this is nothing compared to August. Like I I yeah this is this is perfect. This is wonderful. You can breathe. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, on that note, um, the so Morgan is actually one of our newer ambassadors. So we brought on a cohort of ambassadors in 2021, and Morgan is. She got a little bit of a head start. We found her early and brought her on a couple months before um, we did our nationwide recruitment. And she's a superstar. Morgan, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, what attracted you to Artemis and how you feel about your ambassadorship so far? Sure. Um, Well, I think for me, for Artemis, let's say I've been looking for a uh, having this kind of feeling of, of wanting to hunt with women. Um, I, I love, um, I love my hunting buddies in this family, my husband, my dad, my dad's buddies, family and friends throughout the years. But, um, I kept wanting to get in the field with other women and kind of experiencing that. So I've been on the lookout for it. And certainly if at you know, sporting clays tournaments, I always stalk people and try to say, Hey, you want to go hunting together? And we've had a couple different hunts, but nobody that was serious, nobody that was a peer, so to speak, that really, you know, lived and breathed it and, you know, planned their vacation time around deer season or turkey season or that type of thing. So I came across Artemis, I guess somewhere, I don't know if it was via Hunt to Eat or via a blog or how exactly I got there, but I know I started listening to the podcast and then I started stalking somebody on Instagram. I guess it was you at that point, Marsha. And um, once the South, when Ashley came on board, I kind of stalked there as well. And um, I'm just was so excited to have and, and to find an organization that talked about the things that I, that were in my head and in kind of um in and had the idea to create a community which is what I was looking for um and and so it's really been a so much fun this spring winter and spring to kind of kick that off um in South Carolina and I've already made some great friends and some great hunting buddies 
Awesome. Well, we're certainly glad to have you. One of the other things that we start off the podcast with a lot of times is talking about what's in your freezer. And Morgan, I know from conversations that we've had that you have a lot of interesting things in your freezer. So do you want to give us a rundown? I do. I am so fortunate to have uh, a lot of freezers, number one. Um, and number two, I just love having uh, the wild game. That's one of my favorite things about hunting is the ability to share that um, through food with people. So um, let's see. I have one freezer. It's kind of a small, older freezer, and it's 100% full of venison. And that would be deer that I've killed, my husband's killed, my family's killed. We've kind of traded out. Um, and that's also probably got all my stock in there, deer stock, uh, duck stock, pheasant stock. And then I've got another freezer that has everything else, which would be shrimp, pheasant, quail, hog, dove, snow geese, um, the hearts and livers from snow geese that I've yet to use. So I actually just got an order of Alaskan fish, and so I've been using that some. Um, it's got some chanterelles from last year, some of my summer veggies that I put up. So I, I kind of run the gamut. And then I have another freezer, like above the, um, above the fridge, you know, like in the, in the, in the shed that's full of all the, the beer fridge. The beer fridge is full of beer. The freezer above it is full of nuts, flour, and moonshine. Oh, so what a fridge. Of, yeah. <laughs> what a freezer. I could do, can I just say really quickly, I am so jealous of your freezer capacity. Not only of what's in them, I'm jealous of what's in them too. But I, re, like, I live in a tiny home, so all I have is that tiny freezer above my refrigerator. And then I use my dad's freezer as for like overflow, which is great but he's an hour away. <laughs> oh my goodness. I couldn't do it. I know. I I'm realizing it's not an ideal setup, but I don't know what else to do. Well, Open Ma the suggestions. <laughs> Marsha, you've been coming up with you. I know you've been brainstorming some techniques. Wasn't there a mention of burying a, a garbage can in the yard? There's Yes. Yes. For cold storage. I was thinking of burying. A, it's like a, like a, a, a root cellar. Um, you can bury like a, uh, anything, honestly, <laughs> as long as it's underground, um, you can bury it and it'll provide some sort of um, protection uh, for things throughout the winter, but and summer. But th like that doesn't keep things frozen. Like I'm thinking that that's where I will store my potatoes and my onions and maybe my canned tomatoes, but I don't know where to store my bear. Yeah, that's what I can't imagine. You know, we talk about hunting and all these things. I have dreams of coming out west and hunting some of y'all's big game. But what do I do with, you know, 300 pounds worth of meat? You know, mm -hmm. our, our whitetails, you know, a big buck is going to be, you know, a little over 100, maybe 150, 160, 70 pounds. You know, I, I came out with my alligator with 100 pounds of meat and I had to find storage for that. I mean, I just can't imagine when you have much more than hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Lots of friends, I, I suspect. Has, Lots of friends. Have either of you thought about or experimented with canning wild game? No, but I'm interested. I also am. Morgan, do you have information for us? No, because I have like a general rule against canned meat. I read The Jungle in high school. And so I don't do like spam, chicken in a can, tuna in a can. It just kind of grosses me out. So I've That's fair. Of all the things that I've experimented with, and I, I've, I did some canning this year of um, tomatoes and tomatoes and okra and jellies and jam and all my stocks. I just have not gotten the drive to do meat. Um, it just, it, it grosses me out. And that's, <laughs> that's yeah, I hear that, but I can see where like it, it totally, same thing I did with my stock. I mean, to put stock in the freezer took up a ton of space. That's why I got into canning it because you just needed more, you know, not having 
the freezer space to put jars and jars and jars of stock. So canning does give you more options. So maybe at some point I'll have to try. When I run out of freezer space, when I come out there and get that big elk, I'll have to start learning how to can meat. <laughs> yeah, but no, but that's a good that's a good point. I can institute some of that already because I do freeze my stock and I hadn't thought about canning it. Mm-hmm. But if I do that, it'll it, that gives me at least another quarter of a shelf. <laughs> it does. But you have to pressure, you have to pressure can stock. And that was the thing that, um, it was easy, you know, just doing the water canning is easy with jellies and jams, but the pressure canning, I had a a period of, uh, is this thing going to blow my house up? So I had to kind of watch that YouTube video a good bit. Yeah. And it didn't blow your house up, right? Because that's where my fear lies. It didn't, but I was nervous and I haven't done it again yet. In fact, I will admit my mom was in town and she brought the the pot from the attic for me. I was like, all right, mom, you got to stay here and help me do it. And yeah. I wanted the moral support that so if the, the sky blew upward, I'd have some help. So is your mom willing to come out to Montana? <laughs> <laughs> she oh, my Lord. My mom would be happy. You give her a reason to come to Montana and she'll be there. She'd <laughs> come over there if you needed somebody to sweep your floor. She loves Montana. <laughs> That's awesome. So one of the things, Morgan, that you mentioned in your freezer, I want to actually two of the things I want to revisit. The first one being the, was it hearts and gizzards from Snow Geese? Um, I didn't save the gizzards. I didn't do hearts and livers. Hearts and livers. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about how you acquired those and how many <laughs> you acquired? Yeah. So we did a snow goose hunt, a guided snow goose hunt with a group of friends um, back in February. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big planner. I have all the lists out there. I, I know, you know, kind of was, was uber prepared. And everything I read where there was a, a likelihood, not, a, not necessarily a huge likelihood, but a likelihood that we could get hundreds of birds a day. And there were eight of us shooting, eight guns in the blind. And so I like, prepared us to go out there and get hundreds of snow geese. Well, we were there the week after that crazy weather. And so like our first day, we got two. In the field where three days beforehand, they had gotten 300. <laughs> that was a little disheartening. But it was still amazing. And then the second day, we got like 15. The last day, we got 67 or so. It's like all total, give or take, we got around 80 birds. But we got them on the last day, our, our big amount on the last day, which was somewhat stressful because you're starting to leave. And all of a sudden, you've got all these birds that have to be cleaned because we weren't going to waste them. Well, nobody else wanted the gizzards and the hearts. So here we are trying to clean these birds. Everybody can get on the way back to the southeast, uh, back home. And I'm sitting there, please save the livers, please save the hearts. And I'm I, actually, there's a picture of me sitting by the dog pen with a bucket full of hearts next to me, a mm. pile of dead birds in front of me and the livers on the other side, desperately <laughs> wow. trying to save them. But I'm so glad I did. Um, so I, ha- I put up 62 hearts and three and a half pounds of liver um, when wow. we got back. So I brought them all back to South Carolina, rinsed them off, cleaned them again, and the vacuum sealed them up. Um, Can I... So I, that's amazing. That's so amazing. And my, one of my first hunts ever was a snow goose hunt. And it's probably to this day, one of my favorite experiences in the field. Um, and also, uh, I had the pleasure of having grilled goose heart and it was one of the most delicious things I've ever had. It was amazing. Um, what are you doing with the livers? I don't know yet. I'm thinking, I really, I haven't gotten to it yet. I'm just kind of waiting until all these seasons ended, which our turkey season ended last week. Um, probably going to try to do a couple of different pate recipes. And I think I remember Marsha from a podcast, you talking about that. So I'm, I'm very interested to share recipes on the, the pate. Uh, you, what, what works. Do you and what like didn't. pate? 
I have had some that I've liked. I've also had some that I didn't. Mm-hmm. So we have something here called liver pudding. You ever <laughs> had liver pudding? No, please no. elaborate. Oh my gosh, it's my favorite. And it's, it's basically almost like a, to me, it's like a sausage, but it's, you make it, um, it's, it's liver. Sometimes it's got more or less rice in it. And a lot of times it's in like in a kind of a congealed patty. When I say congealed, you get kind of grossed out, but, it's, but it is kind of in a form, <laughs> right? And then a lot of people will slice it and fry it up crispy. And um, there's a restaurant here called Lizard Spigot, which makes appropriate that they serve liver pudding. But that's my favorite place to get it. And they fry it up crispy with grits and eggs and toast. But that I love liver pudding is my whole point of this story. Um, so I'm hoping that the, I can get some pate with some spice in it that I, that one I would enjoy. Nice. But I, I understand that it's a fairly acquired taste. It is, but I think if you fry anything, it yeah. helps. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That sounds interesting. I would like yeah. to try that because I also feel like the pate, like as a spread, is such a condensed flavor. And I'm wondering if it's in a pudding like that with rice and then fried, if it just, um, I don't know, like eases it a little bit, eases the harshness of the liver, sure. liver a sure. little bit. And, and it's got, and you got more grease. I mean, grease makes everything better, like you said. So I think there's that. Um, but I was going to take the gizzards, actually. You know, but the guys, so I was with, you know, these old school hunters that were not, in, they were laughing at me that I was, or actually laughing slash annoyed that I was taking all these things anyway. And so I didn't feel like begging them to get the gizzards. Um, right. we, were tr- we were trying to get out of there. So that was a good lesson in terms of like how we would do it next time is make sure you got plenty of time to appropriately you know handle everything and get it done like you want to um but I I did part of me was not happy about seeing those gizzards go because I wanted to try them yeah I just I would love to dwell here a minute because I've I've had a experience that I feel like had a lot of similarities when I when I first moved down to Mississippi um the place where I did my field research was it was like 70,000 acres of private land um that was owned by about a hundred different people, but it was basically, they all managed it for trophy whitetails. So there's a lot of deer out there and they never shoot enough does. So they would have some kind of like informal hunts. And because I was a graduate student and involved in the project, I got invited along on one of these annual doe killing endeavors. And so I don't know how many of us were out there. There might've been 12 people on, you know, a thousand acres and we got 15 or so deer probably. And so in that situation, you know, people just roll up in a side-by-side and you throw the deer in the back of the UTV and they bring it back to, they have a whole processing shed, which I'm like super jealous of. Um, (laughs) But, you know, there's like a gambrel and they've got, it's just quick. And the property manager is there and he's, you know, we're all kind of processing the deer, but really he's got his system down. And so he's kind of flying through it and they just put a bucket under the deer when they hang it. We didn't gut them in the field. We would just bring them back to the, to the shed and open them up and all their insides would fall in his bucket. And actually just as a side note, that's my favorite part. Like the bloop, 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 when it falls out. <laughs> Like literally ever since I was a little kid sitting outside the cleaning shed, watching them clean deer at hunt camp. That's my favorite part. Like, Oh gosh. What, that's funny. Say more. What about it? I don't know what that says about me, but it's still mm-hmm. like to this day, the, when it goes, and it all comes out like in one little perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, if you do it right, it is rewarding for sure. You, you <laughs> Sorry, Ashley. Go, go ahead with your story. It's like a, whatever it's like, a, what is that? The a, a, ASMR? Is that what it's called? Like the whisper therapy? I have no, no okay. idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll email you about it later. Okay. <laughs> That's well, too much of a segue. We'll reassess. Um, but anyway, as the blah, blah, blah thing was happening, I was pawing through the 55-gallon drum of innards to pull out the hearts. At this time, I hadn't, I hadn't graduated to deer liver. I was still um, weirded out by flukes, which were in great abundance in those livers. Um, but I wasn't going to let the hearts go because I grew up eating, well, the first heart I ate was on an elk hunt when I was 14 or 15 years old. And my uncle shot this bull and we drug it back to camp. And literally, I remember him reaching in, pulling the heart out, slicing it up and cooking it over the fire. And it was just like the coolest thing that had ever happened to me. Um, so since then, I always have loved heart and wanted to take advantage of it. And all of these guys, first of all, I'm the only woman there. And all of these guys are just looking at me like, what are you doing? And, you know, they were polite and they were kind of humoring me, but I think I can empathize, Morgan, to be in a situation where I, I imagine you were the only woman on that trip. Correct me if I'm wrong. I was, I was. And you're trying to, you're trying to salvage as much sustenance from these animals that you worked really hard to get and also were living you know breathing flying things a little bit before you want to make good use of and everyone's just kind of annoyed by it or at least confused um so I commend you for standing strong I know and it's a funny thing so this year um so we grew up taking the deer to the processor it was just they're, they're right down the road they're our neighbors it's just time value money plus in South Carolina half the time it's so hot you it's just to clean a deer and have to deal with it and and have to fight mosquitoes in the same vein there's all kinds of excuses that really it's just so much easier so we take it to the processor so we cleaned one at the house this year and um and we usually do that maybe once a year or so but and I saved the heart and it was you know again my dad old school hunters and I don't think it's as much a, a, a male female thing as it is just the old school. Like I say, I asked him one time, did y'all ever eat the heart? Like we've never been that hungry. You know, so there's, it's just a kind of a different perspective. It's not that I was thinking about it the other day. It's not as if they don't, they didn't value that animal any more or less than I did. They've been hunting them a whole lives, studying them in many cases, but it just, it, it wasn't the way they grew up to eat all those different parts and, and to kind of pull the call fat out and the liver and, um and so actually I that I saved that heart and then when we had our hog hunt in January I marinated it and served it and all these old guys that had never saved the heart before never eaten it they were like I'm never gonna let another heart go they were completely transformed because they said they just never had it had never been something that they did and they're growing up um yeah so I, I think it's think, a mentality difference and I do think eating the, the more experimental parts of of an animal is part of, of that uh I mean it's both old and new right I think it's part of the foodie culture in hunting that has had a, a resurgence in recent years um that's probably a better way of putting it maybe not age as much as you know these guys are they like their they want a backstrap marinated that no, marinated in Italian dressing and flapped on the grill medium rare <laughs> that's it you know i'm sitting there doing you know cooking it i got a spiced ash i'm doing tomorrow night like 18 different <laughs> spices i'm rolling it in and frying it up in ghee and all these things and they're happy Dang. to eat it but they're not out there that doing it you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
broadening their horizons. Well, it sounds like you made a few converts anyway. With the I heart. did, yes. But now I have to fight for the heart. That's the other thing. <laughs> I'm <I'll> creating <laughs> competition. Um, but it, it, yeah, it, it was it, it was kind of fun to be been introduced to be on that side of it as well. Because you know the, but we did that at, at Turkey Camp too. I took some duck hearts and we marinated those and put those on the grill. And and, and most of the women there had not eaten. A couple of them were into the organ meat stuff, but generally, you know, it's just not something that's that common except for more in the, the foodie culture. Um, I guess unless you go way back to, you know, days when you really had to eat everything to survive. That's a, that's a different type of uh, hunting, I think, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think it speaks just a lot to to the cult the culture around not just hunting, but how you use an animal you harvest. Like I know I, I got s- some very interesting perspectives on the different hunting cultures that exist in Mississippi. Um, this is the, the one where I was kind of describing where, you know, none of the rib cage is saved and nothing really inside the rib cage. It's just a lot of people didn't even want to keep the front shoulders. I got like six deer worth of front shoulders because nobody wanted to mess with it. They just wanted back straps and hindquarters. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking with an, an older black woman about processing deer, eating deer and, she was talking about the neck roast, which is another thing that, you know, a lot of times when processing a deer, it just gets cut off at the top of the shoulder. And if it's not a, you know, a buck that you're going to cape out or it's not a trophy that just goes into a gut pile. And she was talking about, oh man, the neck roast, you can't beat it. It's just, it's the best thing there is. And sure enough, I cut that off and looked up how to cook it and it's full of all this connective tissue. So you have to cook it low and slow, but the reward is amazing. And so this is something that she would never let go on a deer, but that pretty much everybody that I was hunting with didn't think twice about it. Didn't even think about it as a food option, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting, even within the same place, how different um, the way that people utilize game can be. I, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I went, when I, we took a deer to the processor, I told the guys I wanted a neck roast, probably because I think I saw it in one of my cookbooks. And, you know, if you've taken the deer to a processor, most of the time they have like a form that you fill out, you know, how many pounds of this, you want your back straps butterfly or whatever. And I actually had to write in neck roast. Like it wasn't something yeah. wow. that was an option. And, and actually I just had a random thought of how cool, not cool, but us nerds would, how neat would it be to see like the different processing sheets from across the country and oh, I mean, you can tell yeah. a lot about what people are getting you know but on the other side of that let's think about like South Carolina South Carolina low country white-tailed deer that neck roast was like a football a, like a nerf football yeah right? it was not that big versus a neck roast off one of your elk Marsha are going to be you know that's a huge crock pot mm-hmm. <laughs> so bigger than I, my crock pot I know so I think that some, sometimes those variations or, or like it's only because it's sometimes it's because it's not there's not there's so little meat like our shanks here there's not that much meat on our shanks I've used them I use them for stock a good bit but doing some of the osabuco stuff or some of the other stuff with shanks there's just not that much meat that I've seen right. on our little here so. well, and it's also part of it's interesting because I was doing this um recording for the go confident in the wild uh course here in Montana on ethics and conservation and talking about how ethics 
obviously there are, I think, universal ex- ethics that need to be adhered to in the hunting culture. But a lot of the ethics are also very regional and depend on the hunting culture that you're a part of. And I think that's true for for food. It's, you know, outside of what's legal, right, wanton waste laws, mm-hmm. everything else really does depend on the community that you're a part of and a community that you grow up with, with even just knowing what you're, what's possible. What can you eat? Because... I mean, call fat's a new thing for me. So yeah. it's really interesting. Actually, that kind of gets in the conversation that you and I had kind of started, like the whole and regional ethics is something I'm going to steal, Marsha, because Ashley and I had this sub-conversation about why bear hunting versus not, you know, that that whole thing. And like, why 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 do some things appeal to others? But you know, I, I would say probably a very good, uh, a good visceral example of that would be seals. You know, yeah. talk about a cultural regional ethic. You know, that, that is a very specific thing that's been very much dis- Disney-fied where there's probably a very, that probably has a very small, especially when they're young, a uh, small subset of people that, that could cross that, that are willing to go that there because it's what they've grown up with. Like they don't see that it's, it's so much everybody else probably does, see that they, they don't agree with it for whatever reason. But the regional ethics, you know, why this, why that, it does kind of boil down to also what is the use for it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it's, I think it's a lot context, kind of like what you talked about Morgan with the weather and the size of the animal and how all of that kind of plays into traditions, really, you know, that's what it, a lot of it is just traditions. And I think rediscovering some of that through people like Hank Shaw, he's been a huge inspiration to me. And mm-hmm. um, honestly, my family members, like learning my family, my family has for a long time, um, done a lot of meat processing themselves. They make their own sauerkraut and, you know, they're, they're farmers, um, ancestrally. And so it's, it's always kind of been this mentality of use everything you have and make do with what, you know, make do without whatever you don't. So I have kind of that, uh, I don't know if you call it a gene or what, but I have kind of that mentality and then just being pointed in the right direction by somebody about, Marshall, like you were saying, what you what even is edible? Um, I think is it's it's a cool. I like it almost as much as I like hunting. <laughs> Discover, discovering that <laughs> yep. stuff. I, I agree. Discovering all the different pieces and parts. You know, getting into some of the foraging and mushrooms. Last year we picked probably like twenty pounds of mushrooms, chanterelles, which I lovingly call chandel- ch- chandeliers. Um, we and but they, we'd never picked them at our at our pre- place. It, it never been something that we've done and I'm almost 40 years old and that's just never been something that we harvested from the woods. And, but I loved it and can't wait till this year that they, when they pop up. Um, so it's been fun kind of rediscovering those, even with my, my family's background deep in the woods, my dad's a forester, my mom's a biology teacher and biologist. I mean, we grew up in the woods, we ate the woods, we talked about the woods, but we're still finding new ways to, to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Very nice. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot us a little bit. We've so we've touched on family and traditions, and you you've been hunting since you were a kid. Um, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you got started hunting, and maybe even more so, I'm interested in some of those childhood memories of hunting. Childhood memories. Okay, so I mentioned that my my dad was a forester, my mom's a biologist biology teacher um and they they met actually while working for the wildlife department i'll, I'll give a throw out my mom did the check stations which were very common nice. in the 70s 
And we laugh and say, or somebody said that my mom was the best looking woman working in the check stations. And my dad said, <laughs> she really was the only one working. <laughs> that doesn't mean she still wasn't a 10. <laughs> <laughs> she was a 10. Absolutely. So, so that, that type of atmosphere was like in our family from the beginning. Um, my, my dad's father, he hunted, grew up very rural and he uh, grew up hunting here in Columbia. My mom's family, they were more farmers, but by the time I came along, they got, got into hunting. And so when I think about um, I was mentioning when we were talking about cleaning the deer and my favorite part, my grandparents were part of a hunt camp um, that was around, I guess it was probably in the 80s. And it just it was such a special place that it was, um, to me, it's, it's what hunt camps, at least in the South, you know, used to be. It was, they had, people had their campers or the trailers, they would be there all hunting season. Everybody would switch out and cook. Everybody had their grandkids there. Um, I had my little buddies we ran around with, and as soon as the deer came in, we'd pile and sit around the edge of the concrete and watch them clean the deer. Um, I remember somebody brought in a giant rattlesnake, and we, you know, the head was cut off, but us kids sat there on the edge at like, you know, three or four years old, throwing rocks at it, you know, when you hit it, it, it moves for hours afterwards after the head's been cut off. That was magic as a kid. Um, so just being in that environment, um, being able to run wild um, and was was really amazing and so going hunting with my my dad primarily my mom while she did hunt some she's not as big a hunter she is just general outdoors person um but my dad's certainly obsessed with it and has been for a long time so that was the way to spend time with my dad um he traps um I, I still have a very vivid memory if i'm riding down the road and there's a dead fox and i smell fox urine like it flashes back to when he's trapped and there was all these fox hides uh, next to the, um, to the chicken barn. And he had all the lures set. I could smell that urine that he used in the traps. I mean, it's so funny how smell really does that. Um, but he would take me with me when I was little, we went deer hunting, um, went turkey hunting and fortunate to kind of continue that through. I probably got away from it a little bit, you know, middle school, high school, when I had a lot of other things going on, but maybe 15, 20 years, 15 years ago, really kind of got into it as an adult, um, where, I, where it became a goal, not, oh, I'm home this weekend, let me go hunting. Now, it's, it's certainly, it's part of my, my plans for the for a season. Um, and I got married a couple of years ago, and my husband and I are really getting more involved with the, um, kind of the land management part of it, which has added just another, another uh, a depth to our our love of the whole process when it comes to you know food plot management and um we put out cameras that we really enjoy watching and keeping up with everything oh man that's great i i have to say i'm i'm always inspired and happy to hear about uh, people that start hunting as adults but i have to say that the memories that i have of hunting as a kid and just even being around it morgan like you were talking about they're not only priceless, they, they are the standard. I can understand, like to me, hunt camp will always be what we did out in Colorado. And it's funny how you talk about what hunt camp is to you. It's like this big party. And um, yeah, I just appreciate you sharing that. I really, I can identify with that. And I'm sure some of our listeners will be able to as well. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's, that's probably a very regional thing as well, what that looks like. Um, you know, this was a very, you know, um, there was a, there was a, I guess a clubhouse, not really a clubhouse, but there was a, a house and a concrete pad and they had a nice cleaning shed. I think there was a, um, 
probably a cooler there too because we processed up most of the stuff or at least did the initial processing but you know I remember my, my grandparents my grandmother actually I have her when she passed away I got her deer rifle so you know I saw her going I saw other women going so so it was always it was such a family thing and that was what was so the special about Belle Isle at that time um I don't even I, I don't know from a kid's perspective it was it was amazing now who knows when it went in the back room after after I went to bed but <laughs> <laughs> it was a very social family thing and I think that's 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 pretty um pretty valuable in this day and age to have that type of environment absolutely it it's so interesting sorry because <laughs> obviously I am an adult onset hunter, so I don't have that memory of hunt camp when I was a kid, but I do have memories of um, family vacations and camping trips that we went on. And they are some of my most powerful sense memories. Um, I think part of it also might be the outdoors. You know, we we also went with these same grandparents. They took us camping and we went camping for two weeks at a state park at Hunting Island in South Carolina. And those memories, of that, like having the people around, but that type of out, I feel like the outdoor memories to me are so, so much stronger. Like, I don't remember the day I sat inside and played because it was raining, yeah. Yeah. Yep. you know, but I remember when I locked my brother in the chicken um, crate and pushed him in the ditch, you know, I, 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 I remember, you know, <laughs> I remember playing dead in the driveway because we lived out in the country and had no neighbors and we ha- we were laying dead and we had these arrows and we were going to play dead to have the vultures come down to get us and then we were going to stab the vultures well in our memory to this day my brother and i both agree that there must have been a dead cow somewhere because all of a sudden across the pine trees were like 800 vultures coming to get us and we took off running so scared <laughs> But those memories, I think, you know, and and kids have them in the city, too. They have them playing flashlight tag in the neighborhood or running rampant, you know, playing baseball in the street. But I think it's something about the outside memories that that really hold hold dear. For sure. Oh, that's great. I want to hear about the rest of your childhood. That's maybe another (laughs) podcast episode, but it sounds wild. We had Um, some fun. We had some fun times in the country with no neighbors. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Uh, okay, we're going to do a hard pivot here and talk about turkeys. I know turkey season ended here yesterday. Is that also when it ended for you, Morgan? Um, we have two. We have four games in South Carolina, and the uh, the lower part of the state ended on April 30th, and the upper part of the state was May 10th. Okay, so you've been done for about a week. Marsha yeah. still has hope, right, Marsha? No, our last yesterday so uh, was our last day. Okay, it's over so for everyone. I'm now hopeless again. And do we day. all have a, a, a our thumb? I mean, our our lips stuck out right now. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Big time. I but so I will say uh, the on, I went out on Saturday uh, with a friend and we heard turkeys. We didn't see any and we didn't shoot any, but we heard them. Um, so victory. <laughs> Capital I'm V victory. It. I'm with you on that. You say that I, I totally agree, Marsha. I hunted more this year than I ever have. I hunted at least one day every week. And there were some days where I hunted a couple times. Or I might hunt like four times in two days or something. And I had the best season. I heard birds. I didn't hear birds. I saw coyotes. I saw squirrels. Of course, we had turkey camp, which I'm sure we'll talk about. I mean, it was just, I, I, and I learned so much. I got to hunt with some old school hunters that hunted two different ways. And I hunted with some women that I'd never hunted before. So really, it was a great learning season, even though I have no turkey in my freezer. 
Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I second that. Um, but I, I, I'm not saying that I wouldn't trade it for the turkey in my freezer. <laughs> I mean, let me be clear to the turkey gods. I still <laughs> want the turkey. Full transparency. Well, yeah. Morgan, you you mentioned uh, turkey camp. Do you want to talk? Just tell us about that. I wish I could have been there. I think I it's know, not, it sounds I like know. it was amazing. We need to schedule that next time you decide to get pregnant that we can not, 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 <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen during, during a season. Yeah. Um, so we did turkey camp at the end of our season in April. So it was like the, you know, the 20 somethings in April. And we met up in public land in the Entry National or Sumter National Forest in the Entry District, uh, which is about an hour above Columbia. We had six of us, um, and one one woman from Tennessee, one from Georgia, and the rest were from South Carolina. And we had the best time. Um, we did not kill a bird, but everybody, everybody except the most experienced hunter heard one, <laughs> which is somewhat just the virtue of she had to leave. But we all, it was the end of season on public land. We did, we weren't overly optimistic just because those birds have been worked so hard. Um, by that point and we hadn't really we were kind of going we had some scouting that we had done but we'd scouted a month beforehand and, and a month beforehand those birds yeah it's totally different by the time we got there but we knew kind of some areas to hit um, but nobody wanted to come out and play but same thing as I said before even though we didn't get a bird we had the best time sitting around the fire you know we pulled all the turkey calls out Mary Lynn um, opened up her tur- her turkey goodie box and we had all these calls laid out and we're just practicing and, and playing with each other um, in between, you know, passing around the bottle of wild turkey and the wine. Um, we <laughs> put duck hearts on the grill. We had bratwurst. I mean, it was just, it was easy and, and casual, but we were able to share so much um, in terms of the experience. We had everything from never hunted before to 40 years of experience there. That's amazing. That is amazing. Can you... So this year was my first year ever um, going hunting without any men there. I, it was actually with Mary. <clears throat> uh, she t- she took me turkey hunting, and it felt different for me. I don't Morgan, can you can you talk at all about how I guess this did or didn't feel different? I would say it, I didn't feel like I had to prove myself. Yeah. Um, and and the, only, the only caveat to that is the, the majority of the hunting that I do with a man is going to be my father. So, you know, I, I hung the moon as far as he's concerned and, so, and he hung the moon as far as I'm concerned. So there's a little bit different there. Um, but, but generally speaking, I didn't feel like I had to, like if I needed to, to stop, step back and just like, look, I'm tired. I'm going to sit here for a second. I didn't worry about that. Um, you didn't have the, yeah, it wasn't the competitiveness really. I didn't mm-hmm. feel that either. Um, and, but yet I was still learning. I mean, I feel like Mary, I hunted with Mary primarily and then Amy and I went as well. And it was, it was a sharing. It was, Hey, you go for a little while. I'll go. Well, what do you think we should do here? It felt very collaborative, um, which, you know, which works really well for, for, for turkey hunting. Sometimes, but sometimes I would just let her take the lead too, you know, and, and it, but it was not, there was no, uh, the conflict. It was just kind of nice. I couldn't have said it better myself. I would describe my experience the same way. Marcia, can you speak to this at all? Yeah. Uh, uh, goodness. I mean, I think you said it, you echo what you said echoes my experience as well. It there's, it's just this ease, um, even around the campfire of 
and, and just a real comfort. As a new hunter, I think every person that I was at hunting camp with was new to me. Um, whether it's uh, spending time differently with family members or meeting new communities of hunters, both men and women. Um, every hunting camp that I attended was a new experience for me. And there was just an ease and a comfort when I was around the campfire with women um, that I didn't have elsewhere. Um, elsewhere, it was the sense of proving myself, the desire to interact uh, in a way that didn't make me feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that I first experienced that at a turkey camp, Morgan, <laughs> in Idaho. It was this wonderful turkey camp that we organized in collaboration with the Idaho Wildlife Federation, where it was the same thing. There were women who had never hunted turkey before, and there were women who had hunted them for decades. And it was just this easy um, camaraderie uh, and, and communication um, and comfort that uh, I tend to experience in, in when I'm hunting with other women. Sure. I, I think, obviously, I think that comfort can be built in communities that you're m more deeply familiar with than I was, but it came more easily um, in groups uh, of women for me that first couple of years. And I think that's probably a good way to, to phrase it, Marsha. I'm not saying that I haven't felt that ease and that comfort in groups of men as well, but there's, there's certainly even... There's almost like there's a little bit of when you come into a new group of hunters, even if you're an experienced hunter, you don't that you need to validate yourself in a way. Mm -hmm. And 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 I say that in no way do I want to come across that the men that I've hunted with have made me feel less than because I've I've never right. I've been fortunate I've never I've never been I've once I've established myself you know past that I'm the stereotypical squealy girl you know, th that in their mind, they're anticipating. Once I get past that, I've never had any problems. But right. I feel like there's still, you know, you have to get past the stereotype in some cases, you know, why you're coming to this table. Um, and I feel like the women were more open to that. And I think getting past the stereotype and also getting back of the baggage that I bring myself, right? It, yeah. it doesn't necessarily need to exist in the group before I got there. I brought it with me. Right. Yes. Yeah. In your yeah. head. Yeah. Yep. Gosh, our head. That's crazy. <laughs> on there. Dang those noggins. <laughs> but yeah, we had a, we had a great time. I really I look forward to it next year. Um, and South Carolina is about ninety percent private land, ten percent public. And we looked at the turkey stats, and and it's probably ninety five percent of the birds were taken on private versus public, which is about par for the course here. Um, but finding private landowners that are willing to share their turkeys these days is uh fair, few and far between so but the public land it was as somebody that's hunted private land my whole life it was an additional challenge for me it really tested those woodsmanship skills that I had been you know learning my whole life like versus growing up on our property I knew okay the turkey goes there generally I know they're going to roost here and they're going to walk over here because there's a food source here it's hot they're going to go to the swamp like you know generally their patterns but Walking into public land, it was an additional challenge that I really enjoyed. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm laughing because I find turkeys so frustrating because on public land, I find them really difficult to locate. <laughs> I just find them, the, the they weren't where they were last year. And no matter how much I walked around that, that general vicinity, um, 
yelling for the turkeys. I, I couldn't find them. Um, I just feel like uh, it's, it's, um, I don't know. I feel like I'm throwing darts at a dartboard and just hoping that I land on a turkey. I feel like that is turkey hunting though. Well, but you're hunting huge tracks too, right? Huge tracks and those turkeys travel further than I ever expected them to travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's- turkeys. Turkeys. <laughs> uh, okay. We're going to transition again here. <laughs> Morgan, I'll leave it at that. Damn you, turkeys! <laughs> <laughs> Morgan, I know you've got a lot of memories to pull from here, um, but can you tell us about one of your favorite moments in the field or or on the water? On the water, there's not a lot on the, not as many on the water because fish hate me. But I'll go with the, <laughs> I'll go with hunting. I do have a lot, and you know, I thought about being cute and saying my my favorite memory is my next one. Um, oh. oh, that is cute. Because they really are. I mean, I, I that's my, one of my favorite parts. Something new and amazing could happen this time deer hunting, you know, walk it out and feel like you can find something amazing the, the next time you go or you stay out for 10 more minutes. Well, then that's when the most amazing thing's going to happen that you'll never see again. Um, but I'm trying to think of some good stories. I've had some wonderful times out in the field. I was trying to think of one where I had a lot of interaction. Um, let's see. So... A couple years ago, we were deer hunting at a friend's property in the low country, and it's right on the coast, um, and they have a lot of hogs on that property. It's actually where we do our, our annual hog hunt, um, where we get anywhere from six to 20 hogs for the weekend, and we, we make uh, sausage and things out of. What we were deer hunting, it had to be right at the end of the season, and I was on a um, kind of an opening, but to my right was the marsh. Now, what I love about this piece of property is it's kind of a peninsula and you have the river on both sides and it's seven miles back, which for us is, that's a good haul. Um, it's seven miles down this dirt road to get to this property. There's no other houses. The only motor you hear are the boats going up and down the river. And, and then you hear the ducks flying over because they're landing in the marsh. It's just a really kind of a really neat place. But that day the hogs were out. And they were on that corn pile like it was crack. I mean, it was ridiculous. They were all over it. And then there was these other hogs on the other side of the, the these low pies that I couldn't see. And I swear there was all cycles of life going on. There was the end of life. There was the beginning of life. There was, you know, they were laughing. They were fighting. There was all kinds of noises going on um, with these hogs. And in front of me, there was this other you know, you call him a family, he really knows. But the the big male hog knew I was there. And he would walk up and down the lane and would would like dare me to come down from the from the stand. So I was texting my family and be like, okay, I don't see any deer, but there's hogs and it's Uncle Carmine with, with the you know the, all the sausages here and he's protecting them. I had the whole family like little pepperoni and I, I named them all as they went up and down this road. And the deer finally came out and this big hog chased him away, would not let them out. Oh, wow. He was protecting his family. Not I say protecting. Again, I'm anthropomorphic. <laughs> I, I was making them into people. There you go. <laughs> but he was so aggressive. It was, it was really kind of interesting to watch him. I mean, he was out there the whole time. Finally, I had a doe come up to my left. And I heard her and I walked, I was right above her and I have some great videos of this because she walked right below me and I wasn't going to shoot her because she came out really early. 
he chased her off and then she came back. But just watching these, these two species just interact, she came back around later on towards the end of the evening. I decided to shoot her. She was a good size doe. Well, she went into this thick, thick area. This was an evening hunt. And so they came to get me. And the rules at this property are you don't get down from the stand until they come to get you. Just because of the hogs, the, the property owner had some interactions that he's not, you know, he just, that, that's his rule. So they came to get me. And we had to trail this deer into this thick area. And I knew she wasn't far. It was a good hit. But we got in there and I think my husband was behind me and my dad had the lights going and the hogs came back out to the corn pile with the lights on because they don't care. And we're sitting there trailing this deer and my husband had a rifle and he goes, I hope nothing comes at you because there's nothing I can do. Like it was so thick. He couldn't have even raised the rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of like a moment of like, what, what what's going to happen here? Um, we ended up finding the deer, pulled her out. It was fine. But those hogs, standing there with a dead animal they don't care they are hanging out doing their thing um and happy to be doing it making more piglets which they do quite often hogs are the worst i just you just said that and i got a whole other picture of what you meant when you said all stages of the life cycle (laughs) that's what i'm saying there was ending some life and there was some beginning when i say beginning it was a very beginning (laughs) um they're really fun to watch and and you know everybody says that pigs are smart um but we did our hog hunt and there'll be like a a whole um sounder will come out and I shot one one time and then here comes the second one I shot him third one I shot him and then here comes four more like they walk over the dead one to get to the next one (laughs) like how smart is that Uh -uh. it's committed committed (laughs) Knitted, um, but they do make good sausage, and we we enjoy that very much. Um, and 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 what we do is, is is really for meat because if you wanted to eliminate the hogs from the property, um, that wouldn't be it. You need, that's, yeah. that's yeah. I mean, that's not an. Yeah, you have to trap them. You have to trap them and take out the whole sounder. I mean, we're mm-hmm. we're doing it just for meat for that purposes. But they, God, Lord, they make a mess on that property too. So I, I, I mentioned, um, last week that I've got some new sausage in my freezer that was given to me by somebody I met at my bear hunt, my bear hunt last week. And, uh, one of the packages is hog, wild hog, and I've never had wild hog before. So I'm super excited to try it. I don't find, I mean, I, I buy andouille sausage because that's a pretty specific thing, but generally we just do a hot Italian breakfast sausage when we mix ours up and that and chorizo. And those are my two favorites. I use those for everything. Spaghetti, chili, wonderful. Sounds good. All right. Well, Morgan, as always, is such a pleasure to talk to you about, and I, I learned new things about you. Gosh, I thought we were good friends already. Um, <laughs> I was trying to think of other stories to tell, too. I was like, I don't know if that one's a good one or not, but I figured that out. If you need more stories, call me back. Deal. Uh, Our, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I just you are a lot of fun to talk to, and I feel like if we get you and Mary Lynn on the same podcast, I'm just going to sit back and have a really good time. Yeah, no, Mary most... Lynn and I had way too much fun. Like we're already planning; she's coming down for a rabbit hunt. We're talking about maybe doing a fishing trip. Like, if anything, if Artemis was to stop tomorrow, Mary Lynn and I become great friends. So that was a, and, a good hit, right? And I feel like that's all I want. <laughs> 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 that is all I want. Oh yeah. my gosh. We, I wish we would have gotten a bird because it would have been turned into a story 10 times bigger than it was. Next year. Next yep. year. Yeah, I mean, we've already, the stories about our, our hunt together is already like we 
we've turned it into all kinds of things that may or may not, you know, hunting stories turn out just like fishing stories. Like they get bigger and bigger and bigger the more you tell them. <laughs> That's so, right. So. All right. We are going to transition to our weekly closer hits and misses. So we'll start with Morgan. Morgan, what have you been aiming for and how did it go? Let's see. I think I'm trying to think of something out in the field. It is getting warm here. Um, and so we're starting to think about our, what we're going to do for this fall already um, and getting a game plan together for what we're going to plant this year. Um, starting to put fertilizer out on the fields and chufa and wheat and clover and all the different things we do on the, um, the food plot. So I'm, I'm aiming to rally the troops, which means I need to sit my dad down, my husband down, whoever else is going to be participating this year and get a game plan. Um, I will probably miss on that because nobody wants to do what I tell them to do. <laughs> but you try. I do. I do. It, it works out. I'm much more of a planner than they are sometimes. So um, kind of hurting the cats. And a lot of times and what we've learned too is when you're doing that type of stuff, it's so dependent on the weather. And we can plan to get out there and, you know, fertilize this weekend or, or plant. But if, if it's not going to rain, then we're just wasting our money. Yeah. Right. So, um, so, anyway, so that's where we're, I'm aiming to get a plan together. We'll see if I hit or miss. Ask me next week. Fair enough. Marsha, what about you? Oh, gosh. I feel like it's uh, – is it just me or do things get so much busier when spring comes just because there's so much more to do and so much more planning to do? Um, but I feel like this last week I had uh, a bunch of hits. One is that I finished processing my bear and I've got some – uh, stew meat marinating in the refrigerator right now for some bear curry later tonight, which I'm super excited about. Yeah. Um, I did go turkey hunting and herd turkeys for the first time. I didn't get out as much as I wanted to this season. Um, and so I was kind of in the mindset that I'm, I'm just like, you know, walking this round trip, eight mile walk on this beautiful summer day and call that good because I don't know where the turkeys are, but I found them. And that was exciting. Um, again, I didn't shoot any or see any because they were past the trees on private property um, but uh, and didn't come out to play. But I heard them, and so that was fun. And then I started planting my garden because we're pretty much out of the frost fear in Montana now. Um, and uh, I planted two beds yesterday, and I've got like three more to go. But so exciting. Everything's just, I love spring. Nice. That is exciting. Yeah. I actually um, planted, I started tomatoes a while ago and one of them has a flower. I discovered it yesterday. Oh, nice. That's always so, exciting. Yeah. It's super fun to watch that. New life, springtime, mm -hmm. all the feels. Potential. Potential, yeah. <laughs> Pressure in my case. Yeah. Um, so I guess for me, a uh, hit, I bought a bow. And Yay. I am so, so excited. I haven't practiced with it. I haven't even sighted it in because of how pregnant I am. Um, and just, I know that I'm not going to actually be able to practice with it for probably a month at least, but I am super pumped. I'm in love with it. I feel like it's the perfect bow for me. And I hope that all of that ends up being true as, as I get farther along in my archery journey. That's exciting. Congrats. That is very exciting. Thank you. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to talk to you today. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Anytime. All right. Well, 
Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. And until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside.